let's jump in to chapter 30. The reason we're jumping ahead and skipping 29, if you pay attention to those sorts of things and know that Zach did 28 last week, is because chapter 30 is a mirror of chapter 28. And it's a mirror because they're both about Saul and David and their response in these overwhelming circumstances. So last week, Pastor Zach showed us that Saul was trapped in this situation, this overwhelming situation with the Philistines, and he reached out to God, but as soon as he didn't get an answer, instead of repenting of his previous disobedience, he immediately attempted to shortcut that process. He went to a medium for a prediction about the future. And Zach showed us in an illustration from his own life that he never finished. Many of you were asking him what the finish of that story was. You're welcome to ask him after the service. He showed us that if you shortcut God by breaking his commands, that never ends well. But this this has been the consistent pattern for Saul throughout this whole book. If you've been here for any of these chapters, over and over and over again, Saul shortcuts God's commandments and he treats God like he's a genie in the bottle. Like he can just call on God whenever he needs something and God is going to come in and solve the problem. Now we've seen also Saul contrasted in this book over and over again with David. So unlike Saul, David does obey God's commands. Unlike Saul, David does trust and rest in God's provision. And that continues in our chapter this morning. At the beginning of this chapter, David's going to find himself in similar overwhelming circumstances like Saul. So we're going to begin by looking at those circumstances, then we're going to see how God responds to David. If, we're, if you're using the, uh, the Pew Bible, we're on page 251. But as you're turning there to 1 Samuel chapter 30, I'll give a quick summary of what happened in, in 29, just so you know where we're at. Zach mentioned that in 28, or excuse me, in 27, uh, da- we left off and David was with the Philistines. He was encamped with them. Then we had the story of Saul that Zach preached on. And then in chapter 29, we go back to David encamped with the Philistines. Now, he's been encamped with the Philistines because he's been tricking them into believing that he's on their side and that he would fight with them. But as you can imagine, many of the Philistines don't trust David. He has a bad history with them, you know, Goliath and all that. So several of them say to David, David, we actually don't trust you. Uh, You can't fight with us. We need you to go home. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 30 is David and his men are headed back to their home, uh, to their base city of Ziklag, where their families and possessions are at. So we're going to read the first five and a half verses of chapter one. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. 
and Noam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. So they've come home to this horrific situation. The Amalekites, one of their historic enemies, has attacked and captured all of their families, all their possessions, burned their cities, and disappeared. Imagine coming home from what's already a a stressful, dangerous, undercover mission with the Philistines. Come over the hill, back to your home, and you see smoke and fire. You get to the city, and all of your family has been taken by some of your worst enemies. Imagine how that would have felt. And when you think about the weight of that, verse 4 doesn't surprise you. It says that they wept until they had no more strength to weep. Have you ever wept like that before? To the point that your body was so overwhelmed it doesn't even produce any tears anymore. Usually you don't forget that kind of weeping. There's only been a few of those times in my life, and you usually remember them because they come at the most overwhelming of circumstances. The vivid one for me was when one of my good friends was killed in a car crash when I was in college. And I remember finding out the news and weeping that whole entire day until my body wouldn't even produce tears anymore. And that's the kind of weight that David and his men are feeling when they return home. Home is supposed to be a place of security, a place of safety and family and care. And instead, that's been turned upside down by this attack. It's so terrible, in fact, that verse 6 tells us that David's men nearly turn on him and want to stone him because it says they're, quote, bitter in soul. They're so distraught that they're desperate to find someone to blame for this. And that's what people do. When people are faced with these kind of overwhelming circumstances, we have this deep need to turn somewhere, to find someone to blame, to find a reason why this thing has happened, to find a solution to fix it. We long to turn somewhere. So where do you turn? When these kind of circumstances happen in your life, or maybe even happening right now, where do you turn? What's your response when you're weighed down in these kind of overwhelming circumstances? Well, this morning we're going to see that David turns to God. And then we're going to see three ways in which God responds to that. Let's look at that now in verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue For you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue. So in this overwhelming moment, David turns 
to God. Didn't Saul do that as well? Well, notice the language here. The language here is David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Last week, Saul was afraid, and it says he inquired of the Lord. He didn't immediately receive an answer, and so he moves on. But that's because for Saul, as we've seen throughout this book, God is only a means to an end for Saul. God is an answer to a problem for Saul. But here, David doesn't treat God like that. He actually doesn't immediately inquire of God what to do. He sits with God. He sits with God in the brokenness and the weeping of these circumstances. And then it says that he strengthens himself in the Lord, his God. See, David understood God as his personal God. So this isn't simply a case of, you know, Saul gets no answer from God and and David does. This is a story about how the two approaches of these men point to their heart. The way that they see God and the way that they understand who he is. David and Saul both inquire of God, but for very different reasons. So it's not that God answers David because he approached in the right way and he doesn't answer Saul because he approached in the wrong way. Those answers or silence are actually secondary in this story. Had Had God answered Saul's request in the chapter, Saul's heart would have still been the same. He would have still been treating God as a means to get what he wants. And had God been silent with David... David would have still been strengthened by God's presence. So when David turns to God, how does God respond? Well, when I first went to write this sermon, my first point was going to be God answers David. But we've seen, I think, that it's actually that God strengthens David. The answer is secondary. Strengthening of David is what leads him to come in the right way to God, to come to the priest, to ask for an answer in the appropriate way. Because in that overwhelming moment, David is strengthened by God, and God meets him there. So God does give David an answer to his inquiry. He tells him to pursue the Amalekites. But how else does God respond? Well, let's continue reading verses 9 through 16. So David set out. And the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. They gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? Where are you from? He said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb and against the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master. 
and I will take you down to this band. So the first thing we saw was God strengthen David, and now we see God provide for David. This army sets out in pursuit of the Amalekites. A third of the army, around 200 men, is completely exhausted, probably physically and emotionally, from not only their travel, but also their families being taken. They can't even travel any further. So David continues with this group of 400 to pursue the Amalekites. Now there's a problem, and that's that the Amalekites could have gone anywhere. Right? We don't know where they went. It's been at least three days, we know from the story with the Egyptian a little farther down. They don't know where they're going, where to look. But suddenly, in the middle of the wilderness, they find an Egyptian slave of the Amalekites, left for dead. This is called providence. They nurse him back to health. He reveals to them where the Amalekites have gone. And this ought to be a reminder to us that God's provision sometimes comes from the most unlikely places at the most unexpected times. You see, God promises in his word over and over and over again that he is going to provide what we need. But he does not tell us how or when. And it's hard for us, it's confusing for us, because oftentimes we and God don't always agree about what we need or when we need it. So we don't always have eyes to see the provision that God is giving us in that moment. Sometimes we don't even look for it in the right places. This Egyptian slave in the middle of the field, the odds of coming across him as they wandered through the wilderness, the idea that they would stop and question him to see who he was, and that he would have just happened to have been with the Amalekites so that they could now find their kidnapped families. This is the way that God works. And if we assume that God is good, and if we assume that God knows us and our circumstances intimately, then we can trust that he is going to provide, even through an Egyptian in the wilderness. But it's in his way, in his timing. Now, you might be struggling this morning in some kind of overwhelming circumstances. You certainly have in the past, and you certainly will again in the future, even if you aren't when you come this morning. And nobody in those circumstances may have been able to give you an answer about how or when God is going to provide. No one can even promise that that provision is going to come in the way that you want it, or that it's going to be the answer you want, or even that it's going to be an answer in your circumstances. God's provision for you may simply be his comfort and his presence, or even his silence. His silence was a provision for Saul last week. His silence was supposed to push Saul to recognize his sin and to repent. Why is God being silent with me? Because there's something wrong and I need to repent and turn to him. But because Saul does not know God, he's unable to see that provision. Let's not fall into that same trap this morning. We can choose to trust 
and believe that God is going to provide for us, even if that provision is going to be different than we anticipate or come at a different time than we expect. So God turns, or excuse me, David turns to God. God strengthens him. God provides. And then finally, at the end of our story, God is going to restore. Look at verses 16 through 19. And when he, that's David, had taken him down, behold, they, the Amalekites, were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoils or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. The end of our story this morning, God restores everything that was taken. Look at the words that the author uses and the things he emphasizes and repeats. David recovered all. Nothing was missing. David brought back all. This repetition and this emphasis on these words reminds us that God is in the restoration business. He's in the business of restoring everything that is broken or missing or destroyed. Now you need to notice that the damage that was caused is still real. The city was burned. The trauma that David and his men and their families experienced is still felt and real. There's still a battle at the end that has to be fought and people are killed. God restores, but the word restoration implies that something has been damaged. Something needs restoring. So restoration isn't a nice word, but it is a hopeful word. This church is called Restoration because we want it to be a community of hope, but a community of hope that is realistic about the brokenness that's around us. At the end of this story this morning, God restores all, but don't forget the ups and downs that it took to get there. A burned city, kidnapping, weeping, distress, but then on the other hand, strengthening and provision, and hope, and then back again to death, and war, and fighting. These things are the cost of hope and restoration in the world, because the world is profoundly broken by sin and death. So our experience in this world is going to be filled with those things. Our experience in this world is going to be mixed. There's going to be moments of hope and provision, but there's going to be moments of weeping and death. Now, some of you might hear that and you might wonder, if that's the case, if that's what life is full of, then how am I supposed to continue to turn to God over and over again? When certainly there are going to be beautiful, good things, but there's also going to be overwhelming evil. And that's a difficult question. I would encourage you that the only hope is to rest in that God is a God of restoration. Because if he's not, then what's the point? 
God is a God who promises in the end to recover all. He promises that in the end, nothing will be missing. All will be brought back. And if you're uncertain about that this morning, know that the greatest evidence of that promise is not this story. It's the story of Jesus. Jesus is the incarnation of God's promise of restoration. Jesus came as a human being. God himself came as a human being and suffered the worst that this broken world could throw at him. He suffered the most difficult of circumstances. He was rejected. He was betrayed. He suffered injustice and finally death. But then he recovered all. He rose from the dead. He rose from destruction and death, and he brought hope and life. Death in the tomb for Jesus became eternal life, and now he offers that same eternal life to you and I. That's the restoration of God that he's working in this world, in the person of Jesus, for each and every one of us this morning. That's what God does at the end of every story whether it's 1 Samuel 30 or your life, this is what he does. So whenever you're overwhelmed, if you're in overwhelming circumstances right here this morning, or you have been in the past and you most certainly will be in the future, rest in the hope of God's restoration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that even in a story like this about pursuing enemies through the wilderness and finding Egyptians and getting all your things back, we see Jesus. We recognize the brokenness and sin of the world and the destructive power that sin has, how overwhelming evil can be, but we also recognize the restoration that you bring. A small way in this story, thousands of years ago that doesn't seem to have anything to do with us, it is intimately connected to the way that life goes every day for us. Help us remember that, and particularly remember the work of Jesus for us. In your name we pray. Amen.